welcome to Monsters Among Us. I'm your guide, Derek Hayes. Welcome, folks, to a special bonus episode. For those of you keeping track, last week I said I'd be dark this week, knowing full well that I wouldn't be. You see, the fine folks at Wandry and the upcoming podcast, The Apology Line, were kind enough to sponsor an entire episode. So tonight, you're going to hear a series of calls from ghosts, UFOs, monsters. And you're also going to hear a short clip from that upcoming new podcast. But first, let's get some spooky stuff out of the way. To kick us off this evening, we begin in the state of Colorado. But that's not where our first story takes place. Please welcome Taylor to the program to help us figure it all out. Hey, Derek. New listener, a big fan of the show. I really like what you're doing. Um, so I want, after listening to a few episodes about UFOs, I actually wanted to share my own personal story about a UFO that I encountered. Um, this was in 2010. I was actually living in Aruba, which is a small island off the coast of Venezuela. It's a population of about 100,000 people. And a lot of areas on the island, there's a lot of light pollution. This is during the summer of 2010. I was out on my friend's boat. There's about five or six of us. We were down under the boat, and I was on top, and I was just laying out on the mat, looking up at the stars, and something caught my attention in the sky, and I kind of focused in on it, and when I could see, it almost looked like a jellyfish, and it almost looked like it was about maybe 500 feet above the boat, and it looked like it was like a jellyfish, and it had like a triangle of lights, so there was one on the top and then two on the bottom. And it was just kind of floating there back and forth. And then maybe after about 10 seconds, it just shot up into the sky. Like, and it was completely gone. Never saw it again. You know, I tried to tell all my friends about it. Nobody else saw it. Everyone thought I was kind of crazy. But I know what I saw. And it was definitely a some kind of a UFO because I've never seen anything like it. And, you know, just the way that it moved kind of was the weird thing about it. You know, I'd never seen a UFO that moved in that way that it almost like it was swimming. And it also had like a tail that was following it too. So the crazy thing is the very next day, there was a report in China. Um, I've actually seen videos of it where there was a UFO caught over the Beijing airport and they had to close down all the airports. They sent jets flying into the sky to look for it. Uh, they never, I guess they never identified what it was, but it was literally the day after I had seen this crazy UFO. But that's my story, and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Keep up the good work, and a big fan of the podcast. Thank you, Taylor. You know, I have a strange connection with Aruba. Loose connection. When I was a kid, and even now, I dabbled in metal detection finding old coins and jewelry, that kind of thing. But when I was a kid, I was metal detecting on my neighbor's farm, and I found a coin from Aruba, 1979, the year I was born. Then a few minutes later, I found a seated Liberty dime. It's a silver dime. This one dated 1879. I always thought that was weird that those two were exactly 100 years apart and one of those happened to be my birth year at any rate 
None of that has anything to do with Aruba or Taylor's UFO. So let's jump ahead to that, shall we? First off, I had to find some sort of news broadcast to validate Taylor's claims. So please listen to the following clip from ABC News. A UFO in China's skies forced Zhaoshan Airport to stop operations on July 7th. Outbound flights were grounded after the unidentified flying object was detected by a flight crew. The incident has captured the attention of Chinese media, and theories about the UFO's identity are burning up on the Internet as well. They include everything from a hidden U.S. bomber to an elaborate man-made hoax. For now, the UFO continues to be a mystery. A spokesman from China's Civil Aviation Administration confirmed to ABC News that the matter is under investigation. Now in that clip, they show several photographs of the craft that uh, apparently shut down this major airport. It's kind of a banana-shaped ray of light with little red dots above it. Doesn't sound anything like what Taylor described. Not that he was suggesting that it did. But as far as jellyfish UFOs are concerned, this certainly isn't the first time we've heard a report of one of those. And it really begins to beg the question, are we talking about something extraterrestrial or something simply biological that has the ability to float and fly? Nature herself has created other such oddities. Why not this one? Well, at that, thank you again, Taylor, for sharing your entry. It doesn't take much to picture that particular encounter. Now next up, we head to the Cornhusker state of Nebraska, where Matt has a story that recently happened to him. Hey Derek, this is Matt from Omaha, Nebraska. Calling about a little story I had last night, sitting in bed, laying on my phone, waiting for the wife to put the kids to bed. Uh, there's a blue light coming out of my daughter's room, and I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, a really cold chill goes over the room, and I'm like, okay, the air's not on, but fan's on. Maybe I, I just got a good gust of wind, and out of the corner of my eye, there's a shadow person standing in my hallway last night. Uh, moved very slowly from one side of the door to the next. It didn't seemed to want to interact with me. It just seemed like it wanted to move down the hallway and be by itself. I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I, I just let him be. But I just sat and watched. And he moved very slowly. About halfway through the door, my dog, which is the Shih Tzu, started to whimper. Not the first time I've not felt alone in my house, but it's definitely the first time I've seen something. Being in the house alone at night, like if the wife goes out with the girls, I feel creeped out in the house by myself. Uh, I have a very hard time sleeping without somebody else there. But yeah, it was definitely a different experience to actually see the figure and not just sense something else being there. Not that I have a sixth sense or anything like that, but you know, you definitely can tell when something is around you. Love the show, love what you do, love the platform you give us. been binging for a couple of weeks again, so I'm back into the swing of listening, and I just absolutely love it, man. Thanks for what you do. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks, Matt. And thanks for calling us right away after the experience. Now, I can't say I blame you for feeling a little uneasy when you're alone in the house, because based on your description, 
you might not be. But I'm curious if your children have experienced anything strange and unusual. I would suggest simply asking them, but, but I realize how traumatizing bringing something like that up could be. Now, I haven't actually seen a shadow person myself, but hopefully one of these days that'll happen. Thanks again, Matt, for sharing your entry. Now for our next story, we venture to the Empire State of New York, where Chico has a story he would like to share with us. Chico, the mic is yours. Hey, Derek, this is Chico from Queens, New York. I'm calling because I had a paranormal experience from working on Broadway. So this happened back in 2013 when I started working uh, as a doorman at the company I worked for. They own multiple theaters on Broadway. One day, my boss is like, so I need you to go to the Velasco Theater. We have contractors coming there. The house is dark, which means that there's no current production going on in the theater. So as I'm leaving, one of my coworkers says, oh, have fun. You know, the place is haunted. I was like, excuse me? And she's like, yeah, you know, the guy's friendly. Uh, you hear a few footsteps and stuff. And I thought they were messing with me because I was new. But I looked up information on the theater, and then I found out that, yeah, there's been a lot of paranormal activity going on. It, it was just owned by a man named David Velasco, who died, I believe, in the 30s. He built the theater in 1913. And they say that he haunts the theater along with a lady in blue who supposedly fell down an elevator shaft like many years ago. And uh, patrons have uh, reported hearing an elevator going up and down while the show was in progress. Meanwhile, there's no elevator in there. And other people have told me that they've seen a little kid in the theater too. So as I'm going there, I walk inside the theater and I just get this feeling of uneasiness, really uncomfortable. It's just, it's a beautiful theater. It's old. It was just renovated. So if you ever get a chance to see a theater there and, and you're in New York, I highly recommend it. But, you know, I start sitting in the doorman office, feeling uncomfortable. A few minutes in, I, I noticed a uh, white flash, like a camera flash, come from the stage area. As I walked to the stage, my whole body just froze. I saw what appeared to be a a silhouette of two people standing on stage. I'm like, oh, hell no. The hell with this. I, I ran out, and uh, the second I go outside, I get a call from my boss saying, yeah, I need you there for the next two days. Uh, the contractors are going to be there for a while. And I'm like, all right, here we go. This is going to be a long week. So later on, the contractors are there. They're working on stage, and I'm sitting in the doorman office. I have my back to the hallway, and I'm on my phone, and something walked past me that blocked out the light. I turned around real quickly and there was nobody there. I thought it would be maybe one of those contractors that were walking past, but everybody was on stage and they're all wearing boots. So I would have heard them walking past. The next day, as I went back, I'm sitting in the doorman office and I hear this loud slap come from the stage. I said something fell. I thought maybe something broke. So I go to check it out and uh, there's just nothing on stage. There's, the theater is empty, there's no equipment, nothing left on stage. I'm like, ah, this is, this is weird, this is getting really weird now. Third day, I didn't have any experience, but as I was bringing the keys back, my boss and a bunch of other security personnel looking at me like, oh, so how was your experience at the theater? I was like, man, that was the longest three days of my life. They're all sitting there laughing at me, and then they're like, uh, yeah, trust me, there's a lot of people who've had experiences there, most of us here have kind of like a little initiation for me, you know, since I was new to the company. And uh, he's telling me a story about uh, 
a contractor that had experience in the apartment upstairs of the theater where Mr. Belasco used to live. He said that somebody kept on plugging his tools, and as he tried to plug them back in, somebody kept on plugging them again. And then as he looked up, he said he saw a guy in a suit walk towards him, and he just picked up his tools and ran out. He said that he won't go back in there ever again by himself. So my last and final experience had happened a few years later, around maybe late 2015, maybe 2016. It was before I left for my career in law enforcement. And I was working as a security guard, I was promoted, and I got a call to go lock up the Velasco Theater. As I go there, the, the doorman's there in the stage door area, and he's like, you know, give me five minutes, I got to use the restroom. So I'm waiting, and I start hearing people talking upstairs and people walking around. So I figured, oh, maybe he forgot a few actors or workers that are still there. It, it happens sometimes. And uh, when he came out, I'm like, hey, do you check to make sure that all the actors or the workers left? And he's like, yeah, man, I double checked. Everybody's gone. All the actors and the workers were accounted for. I'm like, well, I'm starting to hear people walking and talking upstairs. And he just looked at me with this freaked out look on and say, like, you know, let's get the hell out of here right now. So, yeah, that was my last experience there. And I've uh, been paranormal free ever since. But, uh, yeah, love the show. Keep it up. Thank you, Chico. Now, oddly enough, in my research for this particular call, I stumbled upon an article by the magazine Playbill that essentially goes through a list of haunted theaters on Broadway. And of course, the Belasco Theater is high on that list. And of course, I've linked to this particular article in tonight's show notes. And if this is something that interests you, I highly suggest you go check it out. There's a ton of information to go through. And now... A quick word from tonight's special sponsor. If you could call a number and say you're sorry, and no one would know, what would you apologize for? For 15 years, you could call a number in Manhattan and do just that. This is the story of that line, and the man at the other end who became consumed by his own creation. That sounds familiar. He was known as Mr. Apology as thousands of callers flooded the line, confessing to everything from shoplifting to infidelity, drug dealing to murder. Mr. Apology realized he couldn't just listen. He had to do something, even if it meant risking everything. From Wondery, the makers of Dr. Death and the Shrink Next Door, comes a story about empathy, deception, and obsession. Marissa Bridge, who knew Mr. Apology better than anyone, hosts the six-episode series. You can listen today at wondery.fm forward slash monsters among us, or simply follow the link in tonight's show notes. Wondery's new true crime podcast, The Apology Line, begins with Alan Bridge posting flyers around New York City asking people to anonymously apologize for their crimes. Not to God, not to the police, but to his answering machine. Within hours, the calls started coming in, people apologizing for stealing, infidelity, lying, and even murder. Alan got dozens of calls from people claiming to be murderers, but one man stood out, Richie. He was deliberate, measured, and his calls would leave thousands wondering if he really was the serial killer he claimed to be. That is, until Richie offered to provide proof of his crimes. 
I'm about to play you a preview of the Apology Line. But while you're listening, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or you can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Wondery. Feel the story. The following contains descriptions of violence, including sexual violence, and may not be suitable for all listeners. Please be advised. It was early 1981, and I was with a group of friends at a loft in New York City. It was a dinner party with, I think, about six, maybe eight of us around the the big table. Doug Welch was there, too. Through the huge windows, we could see the lights of the Empire State Building. Rosary candles flickered on a curved bookcase that separated the living room from the bedroom. These gatherings always went late. We were all artists, so we talked about our work, politics, and how we were surviving in the city. The host was a man named Alan. Toward the end of the dinner, as it was wrapping up, um, Alan just sort of casually said, would anyone like to hear the latest that came in today from Apology? Apology was Alan's newest project. Doug's girlfriend, Carrie, vaguely remembered it had something to do with people calling a phone line. Alan held up a cassette tape. Alan was standing and sort of gesticulating, and yeah, he was excited. And we all kind of said, well, sure. Alan walked over to his cassette player, popped in the tape, and turned out the lights. First, we listened to what every person who called Alan's phone line would hear, an outgoing message in Alan's deadpan voice. This is Apology. Apology is not associated with the police or any other organization, but rather as a way for you to tell people what you have done wrong and how you feel about it. All statements received by Apology will be played back to the public, so please do not identify yourself. Talk for as long as you want. Then, we heard the voices of callers who'd left messages. I witnessed a crime. I did not report it down in the men's room at Penn Station. Someone being forced in the booth and being robbed. I feel very badly about not reporting it. Bye. I'm really sorry because I'm white and female and rich. I would like to stop feeling the way I do about the blacks and the Puerto Ricans and the Chinese and the Japs. I just wanted to say I'm sorry to all those poor souls out there that wake up black and blue the next day after I beat the out of them. I've got not really an apology to make except to one person who's my lover who's listening on extension and I'm sorry that I've made his life difficult to him I love you Max I apologize around the dinner table no one moved Everything became quiet, except the tapes. The calls kept coming and became more disturbing. Well, I guess, uh, you know, to the 15 or 20 people that I've stolen money from and mugged and robbed and frightened, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't have to say it 15 times, do I? This last caller wasn't like the others. Let's see, there's uh, Henry. uh, I killed Henry. He was a neighbor. He was a a classmate of mine. 
Around the table, the mood suddenly changed. The atmosphere in the room just shifted from this convivial, you know, post-dinner contentment to abject horror as this, uh, almost this incubus sort of entered the room through the speaker and, and was actually in the room with us. This is a fantastic service that you're doing. It was um, a very tortured, uh, yet dangerous sounding person. The world would be full of people like me if we just knew that all we had to do was just say, I'm sorry, and everything is all right. Hearing that voice and watching that light just blinking, blinking, blinking red, and uh, kind of wanting it to stop. <laughs> Alan got up and turned the lights back on. He looked around, waiting for a response. I just remember us all looking over our empty wine glasses at each other with our jaws hanging open. No one could say a thing. I think we all <laughs> just silently put on our coats and we just sort of filed out quietly and said, thank you very much. <laughs> Doug and Carrie were quiet on the walk to the subway. Once we were on the train, I just remember looking at every all these faces and wondering, is that that sicko who was just, you know, just confessing everything to us? You know, it wasn't something you listen to and then just move on. I couldn't move on either. Alan's art project was starting to take on a life of its own, and it would eventually take over his life and mine. No, I'm not much of a true crime guy, but I'll be honest, I'm intrigued. Do me and the show a favor, check out the apology line today. So let's circle back around and in doing so, please welcome Jonathan to the program by way of our talented voice actor, Warren Pon Abbott. Um, hello, Derek. I just discovered your podcast via recommendation on Spotify listening in the quiet London suburbs over in the UK. I live about 15 minutes from Hampton Court Palace, supposedly one of the most haunted places in the UK, but that's not the story I want to tell. This time, anyway. It was the reference to the fuzzy alligator that made me write this. So, uh, back in August of 2009, my wife and I were on holiday on the Italian island of Sicily, with our daughters, who would have been eight and six at the time. Uh, we were staying on the southwest corner of the island near the town of Castelventrano and the archaeological site of Selenunte. Uh, Sicily is a pretty rugged place, and this is a pretty rugged area, and I soon discovered my sat-nav would often take us cross-country on some rather wild roads, when it would have been much more sensible to stick to the main roads and figure out how to get places by following the road signs. So, uh, yeah, one night we were driving home after a meal out, with the girls both sleeping in child seats in the back of the car. It wasn't late, maybe 10. Um, I hadn't been drinking, and I wasn't driving too quickly, as the roads we were on were... Uh, pretty twisty and unpredictable. The night was dark, 
and it was an unlit country road. Uh, it was typical for Sicily, scrub bushes on uh, either side of the road, and the land and road were undulating. Now, as I came over a slight rise, I had to slow down as there was something crossing the road ahead of us. Bear in mind it was a dark night, and my car headlights were the only light source, but we had a pretty much full-on view of it. The thing in the road was the strangest thing I've ever seen. Imagine a flattish, wide body shape like a badger, but considerably longer, five to six feet based on the width of the road, and it was covered in dusty, shaggy black hair. The worst part was the front end. It was pretty clear in the light that this thing had a long head, and badgers usually have small heads, and it had a lot of teeth. I mean, a lot of teeth. Uh, it was moving slowly but purposefully with the kind of waddling side-to-side -side action of a crocodile. Uh, the simplest way I could use to describe it is a flat wolf, but the description of a fuzzy alligator in your podcast really fits what we saw and triggered some pretty strong memories for me. We stopped the car and watched this thing make its way across the road and disappear into the darkness on the other side. It didn't hurry, and didn't seem too phased by us appearing suddenly. It looked like it was moving normally, whatever normal was for it, as I initially thought it might have been a dog that had been hit by a car or had some other accident. Uh, nothing about it seemed aggressive, but it looked so nightmarish. Uh, I wasn't about to hang around to find out. All I said at this point to Liz, my wife, was, Did you see that? Yes, she said. But let's not stop and look. <laughs> we were both really shaken by the encounter and were glad our children were asleep. I mean, if they'd seen it, I can't imagine they would have got much sleep afterwards. Uh, we drove on with no further incident, uh, about 20 minutes to our holiday home and we never saw anything remotely like it again. I spent some time afterwards researching the fauna of Sicily, and uh, there is nothing like this I could find. Uh, badges are common in Italy, but none have ever been found in Sicily, so whatever we saw wasn't a mutant uh, badger. I'm a pretty skeptical follower of the paranormal, I have read the Fortean Times for about 30 years, and can accept that there are odd things in the world, but my wife, uh, she is a resolute non-believer of anything like ghosts, and is extremely rational. However, she'd happily agree we saw the same thing on the road, and like me, has no explanation for what that thing could have been. It would be very interesting to discover if any of your listeners have come across something similar in Europe. I cannot find anything remotely like it. Anyway, uh, best regards, and thank you for the show. A big thanks to Jonathan and Warren both for that entry. And if the description of a fuzzy or hairy alligator sounds familiar to you, you probably heard the episode that Jonathan referenced. Season 9, episode 18. In which Neil, from Pennsylvania, described seeing something quite similar. 
And oddly enough, he wasn't the only one. A few episodes after that, I actually shared a few other stories from that same region. Possibly the same neighborhood. But as a quick reminder to everyone, here is a portion of Neil's call from Season 9, Episode 18. Uh, hi, Derek. It's Neil calling from outside of Pittsburgh. I moved in with my girlfriend about three years ago, and she had mentioned seeing something that she calls a fuzzy gator. Basically, we live at the top of this hill, and she had seen this thing that looked like an alligator. It walked like an alligator with its legs kind of splayed out, and she said it was fuzzy. Like, that's basically how she described it. About two, three years ago, I move in with her. I park my car up around the corner, walking around the corner to come in the house, and down at the bottom of the hill, I swear to God, is it looks like an alligator, but it's cream-colored, like straight up like, like a light brown color. And I just see it go walking across the street like it owns the place. And I guess there's a sore opening down there, or there was at the time. It's closed up now. So apparently it walked across the street and slipped down into the sore opening. I have no idea what the heck this thing was. I have not seen it since then. So, all right. Have a good day. Talk to you later. Love your show. Bye. Of course, be sure to let us know if you have an idea of what this could possibly be. Thanks again, gentlemen, for the story. Now here we are, ladies and gentlemen, our final call of this special bonus episode. And the following takes us to New Orleans, via Jessica, in the state of Illinois. Hi, my name's Jessica. I live in Illinois, but I have a story for you that happened after I had visited New Orleans. So my daughter and I took a long weekend trip to New Orleans this past October of 2019. And while we were there, um, we decided to take like one of those ghost tour. But it was also like about gangsters and vampires. So it was a little bit voodoo, a little bit of everything. So we did that. And um, we thought that we would end up back to where we started from. But we actually ended up on Bourbon Street. So we had to walk back to our car and we weren't sure how to get back. So I asked our um, tour leader and she told us, you know, some directions of where to go and turn and stuff. So me and my daughter start walking and I made a comment that I hoped that we got to the parking lot before the parking meter was up. So she made the comment, well, I'll just run ahead. That way I can get there. And I said, okay. So she took off. Now, I've been in the French Quarter before, so I have some familiarity with it, and I'm usually really good with directions. My sister actually calls me the human GPS, but for some reason, after she took off, um, at some point I realized that the directions that she get, had given us were not quite right. So I whipped out my phone and thought, well, I'll just use my GPS on my phone to get back to the car. Well, about that time, my daughter called and she said, hey, just so you know, those directions that she gave us are wrong. And I said, okay, yeah, that's what I figured, you know. So I said, I'll, I'll find my way to the car. So she says, okay. So basically, to make a long story short, my GPS would not work. It kept recalculating, 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 which was really strange, um, kept trying to turn me in circles. So I started walking on my own, trying to find my way. And I was totally disoriented. I think I probably wandered for like an hour before I ever made it to the car. I mean, I was like almost panicked at one point in time. It was the weirdest thing. But later that night, we went to get something to eat and we were on Bourbon Street, this restaurant. And I was showing my daughter a picture on my phone that I had taken of uh, something going on on Bourbon Street. And she hands the phone back and she goes, I don't know what happened, but your phone just broke. 
And I was like, oh my God. So it was completely black and I couldn't get it to turn on, off, anything. It was just dead. Well, then we had a new problem because she had left her phone in an Uber earlier in the night. So I didn't know how specifically to get back to our hotel without using my GPS. So I was kind of freaked out about that too because I'm like, you know, what is going on tonight? Like, this is a weird night. So anyway, um, the phone came back on later and we were able to get back to our hotel. But it got really weird after I got home. We left the next morning. I got home and that night I ended up having something weird happen, like a light flickered that was unusual or something. I thought it was weird, but I kind of blew it off. Well, when I got ready to go to bed, I went into my bedroom and I closed the door and I got the strongest smell of cigar smoke. Well, that was odd because I live alone. There's no one around that smokes cigars. That kind of coupled with the light, I thought, oh, great, I picked somebody up, right? So I went to bed, and the next morning I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, well, gosh, did I pick up a spirit or something, you know, while I was in New Orleans? And so I couldn't imagine why, um, but I started thinking about it, and I thought, well, let me see if I can figure out how this is. So the first thing that came to me was the thought of I was famous in the French Quarter. So whoever this was was famous in the French Quarter. Then I got the name Jimmy. The other things that I got was, of course, the cigar, smoked cigars because the cigar smell, um, that this person liked boxing, and something about the Kentucky Derby horse racing, which I thought was really strange because, to my knowledge, they don't race horses in Louisiana, but they do in Kentucky. And I thought, well, this person lives in Louisiana, obviously, or did, so that wouldn't make sense. But anyway, I get online and I start trying to figure out who this person was. Well, I came across an article about a man, they called him Diamond Jimmy Moran. Well, he was very famous in the French Quarter. I can't remember when he died, but anyway, he was born under a different name. And when he was young, he decided to become a boxer, but he didn't want his family to know. So he went, changed his name to Moran for boxing purposes. So there's where the boxing came in. I found a photo of him smoking a cigar. And then I read that one year he was invited to the Kentucky Derby as an honored guest, and they actually paid him more money to come than they paid the Duchess of York to come. So I was about to fall out because I'm like, I can't believe that this is like a a real person, you know. But um, he was rich. He owned a restaurant. Diamond Jimmy hung out with celebrities like Marilyn Monroe, Frank Sinatra. There was rumors that he was a made man with the mob, and he had political ties supposedly helped prevent an assassination of some politician in Louisiana. And so he was very well known in that area. They called him Diamond Jimmy because he had so many diamonds and stuff on his body within his clothing and jewelry when he walked around that it was just, you know, crazy. So anyway, I I was like freaked out that I found this out and that the things I had picked up on were actually true. I, I guess I should say that, you know, it does kind of run in my family for the ladies to be somewhat psychic, but you know, it's still surprising to me if I get something right. So my next question was, why would this person have, you know, ended up following me home, which made no sense to me. But then I remembered, like, when I was wandering in the French Quarter, and I got lost, which was very unusual, and then my phone messed up, which sometimes, you know, electronics are messed up by spirits and so forth. So I don't know. But the only thing that I could think of was that he's not mentioned on that tour. And they did mention one man who had some kind of mob connections, but as far as what she told us, that guy was nothing compared to the way this guy was, as far as like being well-known and stuff. So I kind of got the idea that maybe he was upset that he's not on the tour or mentioned in the tour. 
And maybe he told me because he knows that I like to talk about stuff like this. So I sat down on Facebook and I sent an email to the group that did the tour and I typed him up my story and I said, listen, this is really strange, but I'm going to tell you about it. And it really happened, you know, and I told him, I said, I don't know. I think maybe he is mad because he's not mentioned. So of course they never commented back. So they probably think I'm absolutely crazy. But anyway, that's what happened. And I thought it was very, very strange. So I thought you might enjoy hearing it. But anyway, I love your podcast. And so I've had lots of weird things happen. So you'll probably hear from me again. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Jessica. That's pretty wild. And let that be a cautionary tale to anyone else spending time in haunted or spooky locations. If you believe in this stuff, it just might follow you home. And that's going to do it for this episode. A big thank you to Wondry and the Apology Line for sponsoring this bonus content. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And keep the party going by following the show on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit. And that terrifying score you hear. That's code.ag music and white bat audio. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you guys next week for Hometown Legends. Have a good night. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.